So, we've been uh, reading through the Bible, and you all have been in the book of Acts. So what I decided to do is kind of do, for the next you know, couple weeks, in the last couple weeks, go through the book of Acts with you. We are in chapters 9 through 11 today. Here's what happened. If you remember last week, church needed some help, so the apostles had the church appoint deacons. Stephen, one of the lead guys, shared the gospel in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they were so mad, they stoned him. It says that a guy, a rabbi, named Saul was there, consenting to his execution, and then he went on a persecution spree of the church. And so all the believers, and remember, they're all mostly Jews at this point, they all flee. Philip, one of the other deacons, goes down to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. A whole bunch of Samaritans get saved. And then Peter goes there to bring the Holy Spirit. This is where we're at in the story when we jump in to Acts chapter 9. We find that Saul goes from enemy number one to fan number one. He goes from a persecuting rabbi to a preaching apostle. And here's how that happens. I'm in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that, that if they found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might make, take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, he said. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. All right, it says, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. The way. What's the way? This is a new thing. A bunch of Jewish people, and now some Samaritans, believe in Jesus, thinking he's the Messiah. They got their own group of people. There's thousands of them already. But they don't have a name. They're not called the church. They're not called Christians. They're just a group of people who follow Jesus. They follow the way, the truth, and the life. So at this point in the scripture, they don't have a name. They're just called the way. So that's where that comes from. I don't know about your version of the Bible, but mine capitalized it. So now, I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes for a minute. When we're first introduced to Saul, he's there at the stoning of Stephen, and we're thinking, wow, what an evil man, because he's murdering one of God's saints. Yes, but he didn't know. He didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought these guys were a bunch of heretics ruining the community. He thought he was doing God's work. Now he's on his way to Damascus with letters of authority to arrest people who follow the way. And he gets struck off his horse, sees a bright light, and hears a voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. What's going through Saul's mind at that exact moment? Oh my God. What have I done? done I thought oh no I killed oh no oh no can you imagine what he was thinking 
He thought he was doing God's work. He was doing the devil's work. He was killing God's people. And now he's blind. Jesus struck him blind. And for the next few days, he's blind. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Now, before I read more about what happened to Saul, I want to step back for just a second. Something Jesus said, I can't let go. He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? I just think that is so awesome. That God so associates with us. That Jesus so associates with us. He considers himself one of us. He doesn't consider himself... He's just God and we're just people. In fact, he told his disciples, you're my friends. We're his brothers. And so when people persecute his people, it's like persecuting him. Let me tell you something. If people give you a hard time at work or your family members despise you and mock you because of your faith, Jesus takes that personally. I hope that gives you a little bit of encouragement It does me. So in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is not the same one that got killed earlier. The Lord called to him in a vision. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. This Straight Street in Damascus, they still know where it is. Tourists go there. I've seen pictures of it. And they even got a little building there that says, this is where Paul stayed. I think that's pretty cool. So you can still go there and see Straight Street. So Ananias, go to Straight Street. There's a guy there from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So I want you to go there. Go to Straight Street. Ask for Saul. You're Ananias. At this point, what do you do? You put on your shoes and you go. And you go like, this is so cool. God spoke to me. How cool is that? God spoke to me. And I get to do a miracle. I'm going to go to this guy and give him his sight. Woohoo! Let's go. But no, that's not what happens at all. Look what happens. Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He comes here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And at this point, Jesus is like, gee, thanks for the news. I didn't know. Why is he saying this? Why didn't he just go? Obviously, he's not informing Jesus. Jesus knows. He's scared. He doesn't want to do what Jesus wants him to do. He puts his fear at this one moment over his faith interesting Peter did the same remember he got out of the boat he was walking in faith walking on the water then he saw the waves and he got scared he began to sink Jesus grabbed him and said why did you doubt he put his fear over his faith was there any reason Peter walking on the water should have sunk no I mean I can't give him grief I would have never got out in the water so he, he gets credit Ananias really the Lord just spoke to you and told you to do something Why are you scared? How can you be... God tells you to do something. Why would you be scared? I don't understand it. 
yeah, maybe I just think myself a better person, and maybe that's shame on me. But if God says, Steve, right now, walk to Africa. Okay, I'm going. I'm not going to say, wait a minute, you realize there's an ocean between us and Africa, right? So what? For God, that's a problem? Do you realize how awesome God is? If God wants me to walk to Africa, there's nothing stopping me. I hope I can be that kind of person, should God ever speak to me. Heck, I hope I can be that kind of person if God doesn't speak to me. Ananias, he pulled a Moses. God said, Moses, go to Egypt, let my people go. And Moses said, you sure you got the right guy? And I've tried this before, it didn't work. Go. You know, you can send my brother Aaron. He speaks well. I, 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 I don't even speak good. Moses, go! So at this point, he's telling, in my translation, it's like with an exclamation point, go! This man is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. Ananias said, he has done harm to your saints. I need to help you out with that word. Um, the Catholic Church is very influential, and a lot of Christendom has been influenced by the Catholic Church. They teach that for somebody to become a saint, well, first of all, you have to maybe do some miracles in your lifetime. You have to be a, a special holy person. And then after you die, I don't know, the Pope and a bunch of cardinals or somebody sits around and determines through investigation whether or not you should be elevated to the status of sainthood. I might have gotten that a little wrong, but that's the gist of it. But biblically speaking, that's not how you become a saint. Biblically speaking, you trust Jesus and choose to follow him, and immediately you become a saint. I've got a room full of saints here. That's a saint. It, it's nothing more than that. You, you can see that throughout scripture. So um, I think you all should get on a plane, go to Vatican City, and set the Pope straight. <laughs> so Ananias went to the house, and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said... Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see. He got up and he was baptized. I wonder why did Jesus make him blind? You ever thought about that? To punish him? No, of course not. That's no punishment. Three days of blindness for killing people? Come on. Had to be another reason. And besides, Jesus isn't into punishing people for their sins who believe in him. That's why he died, to cover our sins, if you'll recall. So why did he make him blind? I don't know. I don't have the answer. Thinking about it, I thought, though, there's an interesting parallel. Saul was spiritually blind. Jesus made him physically blind. And only for three days. What would happen if you spent your whole life being able to see, and then instantly you're blind? Instantly. Well, first of all, you're like helpless. You're not used to walking, touching, grabbing, feel. You don't know what to do. You need somebody to take you by the hand and lead you everywhere. It says that's what happened with him. And I'll tell you what, talk about no distractions. That's what I think the key is right here. I don't know, but imagine, just close your eyes with me for a second. I'm doing it. You know, somebody waving their hand doesn't distract you. A light flashing by doesn't distract you. A pretty woman walking by doesn't distract you. Ladies, a handsome man doesn't distract you. Guys, a chocolate cake doesn't distract you. <laughs> Ladies, a chocolate cake doesn't distract you. <laughs> there is no distractions. There's just you and God. 
and you're thinking, what did I just do? Oh, what did I do wrong? It doesn't say it in here. It infers it without being able to argue because it's so obvious it says he was baptized. So during this three days, he became a follower of Jesus. He became a believer. He was meditating, thinking on these things, and he gave his heart to Jesus. Now, that's chapter 9. Chapters 9 and 10 are pivotal in the book of Acts. Everything falls to either the left of it or the right of it, because everything changes. From the first few chapters, we got Peter, James, John, all the apostles of the Lord that we met in Jesus' lifetime. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it talks about him calling the twelve, and him teaching the twelve, him equipping them for ministry, him commissioning them. And in chapter 1, he says, hey, go to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, he fills them with the Holy Spirit, and he says, go, spread the word. We watch Peter healing people. We watch miracles, them preaching in the temple. It's all about Jesus' immediate apostles. And now we hit in a transition. Saul, whoever he is, this stranger, all of a sudden gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and the rest of the book's about him. But there's a reason it's laid out this way. If you'll recall, Jesus sent them and said, you're going to go from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. I think I've got the the verse right here. Yeah, Acts 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Philip goes down, brings the gospel to Samaria after Judea and Jerusalem. Peter goes and verifies it, brings the Holy Spirit. Then Peter goes to the Gentiles. That's the next chapter. That's where we're at right now. And then Saul, who we just saw got saved, goes out to the rest of the world. So the fulfilling of the Great Commission is happening right before our eyes. But Peter is the main man. He's the one that's got to set the stage. He set the stage in Jerusalem. He set the stage in Samaria. And now he's got to set the stage for the Gentiles. And then he can pass the baton to Paul, who's at this point still called Saul. And Saul can go out to the ends of the earth. So here's what happened with Peter. You've got a villa. He's at a friend's house on the Mediterranean. Oh, it's so pretty. And he's up on the roof. So he's taking advantage of the cool breeze. He's looking at the blue waters of the Mediterranean. I'm picturing picturing last time I was there. Ah, so nice. And it says he went up on the rooftop right before lunchtime to pray. And while he was praying, he fell into a trance. Now, I don't mean freaky trance like you've seen on some of the scary movies they have nowadays. Just means that he went from the physical world to the spiritual world. And God showed him a vision. And in the vision, he sees this big sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet are all sorts of animals. Specifically, unkosher animals. Lizards and snakes and stuff like that. And then a voice from heaven says, Peter, get up, kill it, and eat it. And Peter goes, no. I I don't eat unclean stuff. I've never eaten anything not kosher. And then the sheet goes back up. And then the sheet comes back down. And the voice says the same thing. And he says the same thing three times. There's something interesting about three-time visions. You look through Daniel. You look through Genesis, where Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's three-time dream. Go to Daniel. The thing is sure it's established. A three-time vision, I mean, like one vision's not enough? One vision's enough for me. Three-time vision means it's serious business. It's for sure. 
Okay, so now Peter's vision's over and he's sitting there going, what was that? Would God tell me to eat pork? No, the Torah says don't eat pork. That's God's word. God wouldn't contradict his word. I don't understand. What's going on? While he's trying to figure out the meaning of the vision, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, I'm sending three men to you. I want you to go with them, doubting nothing. And right at this time, there's a knock on the front door. Remember, he's up on the roof. So I just figure his host goes to see who's at the front door. It's Romans, Roman soldiers. Oh, no. What do you do? Roman soldiers come knocking on your door. See, we don't have anything in our country that's like that. If police officers knock, police officers knock at your door, that's great. They didn't kick it in. You're fine. You, nothing to worry about. But if Romans come knocking on your door, you never know what they want. They could do anything. It's not pleasant. It's scary. So they come knocking at the door. Peter comes down and says, okay, it's okay. Let them in. Let them in. You don't bring Gentiles into your house. And then Peter invited him to stay the night. No, 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 no. You don't do that. That's against all the Jewish rules. Everybody knows you don't do that. Peter did it. Peter. The apostle. Then the next day he gets a bunch of men and he says, we're going with these guys. The guy said, we were sent from a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He's not Jewish, but he loves the God of Israel. And the other day he was praying and an angel came to him. And the angel said, there's a guy down in Joppa staying at such and such a house. His name's Peter. Come get him. Bring him back to Caesarea to your house and he'll tell you something. He's got words for you. So Cornelius sent the guys. The guys told this to Peter. Holy Spirit told Peter to go. So Peter went and took some guys with him, some witnesses, some backup. They go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius, Roman centurion, tough guy. Think drill sergeant without restraint. Comes up to Peter falls down at his feet. Peter says, get up, get up. What are you doing? I'm just a man. He said, you're not going to believe this. You know, I love your God. I love your people. I give alms to your people. I pray to God all the time. Well, the other day when I was praying, an angel came from him. And he told me to send for you and you had something to tell me. What is it? Peter says, ah, I understand now. My vision. God has instructed me not to treat Gentiles as if they were unclean animals. Here's what God wants me to tell you. God promised to send us the Messiah. This is Jesus. He came. And while he's sharing the gospel with this centurion and all the witnesses, the centurion's friends, his family, the ones Peter brought, a house full of people, the Holy Spirit descends just like he did in Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire, power, the whole nine yards, speaking in foreign languages. Now, Peter was there in Acts chapter 2. Peter was there in Samaria when it happened to the Samaritans. And now Peter's here when it happens to the Gentiles. So Peter knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God treats Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans all the same he gave everybody the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way he did to the Jewish people. So there should be no distinction in Jew or Gentile. 
That was the lesson Peter got. That's what he told Cornelius. And that's how the gospel first came to non-Jews. Samaritans first, the half-Jews, and then the full non-Jews. And that was through Peter. But now we know Saul's in the picture. And now Saul starts to become called Paul. Why? We don't know. It doesn't say in there. But it's interesting. In the chapter where Saul starts becoming called Paul, he is commissioned by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that another time. And he goes to a place where the leader is a guy named Sergius Paulus. Paulus, that's Paul. So God commissions Paul. He immediately sends him before one of the mightiest men in the Roman Empire, and his name happens to be Paul, which is quite interesting. And then Paul goes from there to the hometown of Sergius Paulus and preaches the gospel there. That brings us to chapter 11, by the way, our last chapter for this morning. Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the Holy Spirit and are sent to Antioch. And it says the disciples of Jesus are first called Christians at Antioch. So we're not going to see that word the way much anymore. But now we're familiar with the word Christian. In fact, that word has stuck to this very day. Followers of Jesus to this very day are still called Christians. It doesn't say how it happened. It just said they were first called Christians at Antioch. Some of the church fathers wrote that it was actually used as an insult by some people. Oh, there's those little Christ followers walking around. But whatever, it stuck. And you know what? If you want to insult me by calling me a little Christ follower, I'm good. I'm good with that. That's what I want to be, a little Christ follower. It's like trying to insult somebody who says, you're really smart. <laughs> oh, put me down. Man, you're handsome. The people try to put him down. It didn't work. By the way, the word Christ or Christian, the English equivalent for that word, because that's not really an English word, is Messiah. So you could have translated this, that the disciples were first called Messianics in Antioch. It would have been better English. But the word stuck. We've got it. We used it. Acts 11. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts by the elders, I mean to the elders, by Barnabas and Saul. So it says there is this worldwide famine during the reign of Claudius. You know me, I like... Jewish, Roman, biblical history. I like biblical archaeology. And I thought, you know what? This sounds familiar. I think there's something in the archaeological record about this famine. And so I went and looked it up again. And sure enough, let me read to you what I found. First, I got a picture of a sarcophagus I'd like you to see up here. This is in a museum. And this is what is uh, believed to be Queen Helena's sarcophagus. Queen Helena was a queen of a kingdom up in the area of Persia. She, her husband, her kids, they became followers of the God of Israel. She went full bore. She moved to Jerusalem. Rich woman built a palace. She wanted to be close to the Temple Mount. She wanted to be close to God. 
Josephus writes about her. She's even mentioned in the Talmud. She's quite famous, Queen Helena. Listen to what Josephus says about her. Her arrival was very advantageous to the people of Jerusalem, for a famine oppressed them at that time, and many people died for want of money to procure food. Queen Helena sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of grain and others of them to Cyprus to bring back a cargo of dried figs. They quickly returned with the provisions, which she immediately distributed to those that need. She has thus left a most excellent memorial by the beneficence which she bestowed upon her nation. So she becomes a Jew in heart. Right at the time this horrible famine strikes, she feeds, who knows, countless people, saves the lives of countless people from her wealth. The fourth, this was a first century historian who wrote this. Uh, fourth century church historian Eusebius also wrote about this. Here's what he wrote. In the chapter, chapter 8, headed, The famine which took place in the reign of Claudius. Caius had held the power not quite four years, when he was succeeded by the emperor Claudius. Under him the world was visited with a famine, which writers that are entire strangers to our religion have recorded in their histories. And thus the prediction of Agabus recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, according to which the whole world was to be visited by a famine, received its fulfillment. Interesting thing happened while I was preparing this message. What I have here is the latest version, Biblical Archaeology Review. This is the latest copy. On the front page it says, Queen Helena's Jerusalem Palace. Has it been found? And they got a huge, probably the biggest article in the magazine, this issue, on Queen Helena's Palace in a parking lot just south of the Temple Mount. They got pictures of it. They've got, this is a picture of, of the tomb area. They've got diagrams of the friezes, of the complex. This is page after page of this amazing archaeological discovery that they are convinced is Queen Helena's palace. By the way, that's a copy of the tomb we had up there, the, the sarcophagus we had up there just a moment ago. I just love how secular science constantly validates the Bible. And that's why I make that program, Rocks, Shovels, and Manuscripts. I'll be flying out to Texas probably in a few weeks to film the second season. It's on Roku. It's on the Internet. If you like that sort of thing, if this sort of thing makes you excited, you want to tune into that show. So... They go and collect money for the poor people in Jerusalem to help them during the famine. Saul and Barnabas, and then they bring it to the elders. Romans chapter 15 talks about a collection for the poor people in Jerusalem. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but there's a lesson there that I want to share with you, and then we'll be done. Here's what it says. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the, servants of the, in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. 
So 1 Corinthians 15 talks about a debt of gratitude the church of Jesus has, specifically the Gentile arm of it, the non-Jewish arm of it, to Jewish people because the Jewish people brought the Bible, the prophets, and Jesus to the world. Debt of gratitude. A lot of so-called churches, and I have to say that based on their behavior, you know, are leading the charge of trying to divest from Israel and boycotting Israel, Israeli products because they don't like the way Israelis treat the Palestinians. So rather than blessing the Jewish people, they're cursing the Jewish people. I'm just wondering today, for the Gentile arm of the body of Christ, if we have a spiritual debt to the Jewish people, how do we repay it? There's no famine there today. Their country's doing just as well as ours is. But I still think there's things we can do and should do so that we maintain this connection and this accountability and this thankfulness that God has laid before us. Here's some suggestions, for example. What can we do as a church today? Number one, we can support Israel. And buy Israeli products. Just because that's divestment group, buy even more of them. Support Israel. Number two, stand against anti-Semitism. People say anything bad about Jewish people, stand up and say something. Say, did you know Jesus was Jewish? And when you curse Jewish people, you're cursing Jesus. Don't do that. Stand up for them. You know, we had this March of Remembrance just a few weeks ago. Book of Life represented. We had a lot of you there. It was, it was beautiful. Thank you. You did this without even knowing it was in 1 Corinthians to do. You took a stand. In fact, from that day of that march, the week of that march, till today, several of their churches are wanting to get involved in next year's march. In fact, they represent so many people that we're now looking at another church or location to host it because they won't fit in here. How cool is that? So there are a lot of Christians right now who really want to take a stand against anti-Semitism and a stand for Israel. And I want to ask for your prayers. Something as big as this seems to be becoming could be difficult. Uh, the enemy could come against it. And just the logistics of it, complex. You know, we're talking thousands of people. We're going to go, year one, 60 people. Year two, 100 people. Year three, 150 to 200 people. That was this year. Next year, 2,000 people, 5,000 people. Lots of people. What do we do? We need prayers. Because I do not want the potential scope to keep us from doing it. No way. We just have to do it wisely. We need doors opened and we need prayer. So I'm thrilled to death about the potential for next year. But really, it could all go south. So I'm seriously, I'm asking you to pray from now till then that it doesn't. So support Israel, stand against anti-Semitism. And thirdly, promote outreach to Jewish people. I guess this goes hand in hand with supporting Jews in the land of Israel who share the gospel with Jewish people or who do Jewish outreach in this community. Those are three suggestions. Maybe you can come up with others yourself. In fact, the, the March of Remembrance, we took up a collection to send to those who minister to poor Holocaust survivors in Israel. 
and next year we'll probably take up for that same group. So we can have a physical way of fulfilling this very thing that Barnabas and Saul were doing. So Israel gave us the Messiah, but she lost him along the way. That's just so sad. It's ironic. It's tragedy. And so above all things, we have the responsibility of bringing the Messiah back to his own people with wisdom and humility. I don't know if you make it a habit to pray for Jewish people or not, but I'd encourage you to do so. I mean, uh, how many of you know a Jewish person other than me? <laughs> Put up your hands. Put them up high. 95% of you, it looks like. I mean, it's huge. Almost everybody put up their hand. You realize the Jewish community is like 0.02% of the country's population? So how is it that you all know a Jewish person? I think it's 0.02% of the world's population, maybe 2% of this country's population. So shouldn't it be that 2% of you know a Jewish person or something crazy like that? How is it that all of you know a Jewish person? You think that's an accident? There's not a lot of Jewish people. It lets you all know one. How is that? That's God. God is connecting you to Jewish people. There's a reason for that. Ask God to give you the wisdom to stand for him in a godly way, to share your faith in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I didn't expect that many hands to go up. I'm pretty excited. I'm excited that you've allowed us to interact with your people to such a degree. But just like Saul, there's a lot of spiritual blindness, not only amongst my Jewish people, but amongst the non-Jewish people in this community too. We want to bring the light of the gospel to all of them. And I pray that you would help us to do that. And perhaps through this March of Remembrance next year, it could be a significant way of showing the Jewish community that we're not just soul snatchers. We're not just out there to convert them to our religion. We're out there to bless them, to take a stand with them against evil. For us, Lord, for those within our congregation and those listening in, if they've not yet made a commitment to the Messiah, I pray you would touch their hearts, call them to serve you fully and completely. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.